I was secretly hoping for one of those Sundays where there was like five people here. But we're going to do it this way. Um, it's good to see you all, and it's good to be here in this place, a new place for me. Um, it's been quite a process getting here, um, but I, I, God has been gracious. He showed me more of himself and, and my prayer is that I can try to communicate that, because this isn't about me. If you leave thinking about me one way or the other, you've, uh, you've missed the point, and I've probably done a bad job. Um, so I'm going to pray, not just as a formality, but because I need it, and we need it. Oh, Heavenly Father, triune God, we desperately need to see who you are. We are prone to blindness. We are prone to worship ourselves and not you. We are prone to give away the highest supreme glory and delight for, for worthless things. We need to see you. And I ask that, that by your grace, through your spirit, through these words that I say, that we might have a chance to do that today. And, and worship you for who you are in your glory. In your name, for your sake, I pray. Amen. So, my very first sermon, and I'm trying to tackle the glory of God. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, but let, let's start. Let's start. So, I want to start with a big question. And when we think about big questions in life, we usually think about, you know, who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? And those are very important questions. Those are the questions that this sermon series is supposed to answer. But there's a, a, another question, a primary one, and that's who is God and why does he do the things that he does? We can't answer the question about us until we understand something of who he is because we only live and exist in relation to him. Um, and, and it's a question. It's a, it's a terrifying question. Like Justin said, God lives in unapproachable light, and we can't, we can't just waltz in and ask God what he's like. like. We're not even capable of understanding what God is like, but he has been gracious enough to explain himself to us in his word. Um, so we're going to start by looking at God's passion for his own glory. Um, we're going to go and, and, and ask the question, why does God do the things that God does? Um, so, starting with, why did God create? Why did God make anything? It says in Colossians 1.16 that all things were created by him and for him. So he created them for himself. Isaiah 43.16, it says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I created for my glory. Not mine. My glory. Why did God work in Israel? For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Psalms 106, 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. That he, make might, he might make known his mighty power. Why did Jesus come? Uh, in in the, the story of Jesus' birth, the, the angels, what do they declare to the shepherds? They say, glory to God in the highest. Jesus came for God's glory. Uh, in Romans 15.8, Christ became a servant to the circumcision, meaning he became a human, a Hebrew human, 
to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Why does God forgive sins? Isaiah 43, 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own namesake, and I will not remember your sins. Why, why does he choose us? Uh, in Ephesians 1, I won't read it all, but as he's going through describing all the things that are ours in Jesus, he keeps adding this, this phrase to explain why God did these things. To the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, and again, to the praise of his glory. That's, that's why he sought us, that's why he's given us everything that's ours now in Jesus. So, I, I think that the testimony of scripture is pretty clear that God does what he does for himself. He does it for his glory, he does it to, to show how great he is, how merciful he is, how powerful he is, how beautiful he is. which is, is not often why we think about why God does what he does. We'll get into that in a little bit. But we saw in those texts, God referred to his name a lot. And I think it's worth thinking about that. If we're going to understand some of who God is, a good place to start is how he's revealed himself. For us, names don't carry that much weight. They're, they're kind of an arbitrary label. My name is Jacob, which means grabber of heel. I don't grab people's heels. Generally. But, I don't know. I mean, it's not the same with God. God's name is in perfect concert with who he is. Perfect concert with his being. Uh, so when he says his name, it, it has real significance and tells us something about who he is. And there's all sorts of names for God in the Bible. There's Adonai, which means Lord or Master. There's Elohim, which means might, mighty in power. And many, many others. And all of them tell us something about the majesty of God, but he has one particular special name, the one that he said to Moses, his covenant name with Israel, uh, and that's Yahweh. And, and the way I understand it, all of the other names for God we see in Scripture are, are titles, they're designators, they, they tell us who God is or, or what he does, but Yahweh is his particular name. So, like Lisa, my wife, is Emmanuel's mother, and she's my wife. I could call her wife Manny could call her Lisa, but her name is, L L you know, Manny could call her mom. <laughs> he actually, he's been calling her Lisa recently, and it's sort of disconcerting. But M Manny would call her mom, and, and he'd be right. That's who she is. That's a title, but, but her name is Lisa. And, and God has said that his name, his particular name, is Yahweh. So let's, let's try to understand who God revealed himself to be. Yahweh means, in Hebrew, I am I am, or I am that I am. That is how God has revealed himself. So my interpretation of that, my, my attempt to, to grab that, because that's hard to deal with, is that God existing, God being God, is the truest and most important thing about God. He is. He doesn't need to reference anything else to define himself. We as creatures, we're limited, and we're imperfect, and we're dependent, so we define ourselves by who we are. I'm a male. I, I work as an electrician. I, I'm married to Lisa. But God doesn't need to define himself by anything else. He defines himself by himself. Because he is infinite and perfect and self-existent. Unique. There is no one like him. 
He is because he is, and he exists perfectly in himself, and everything else exists only because he exists. He's the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, the first and the last. And this is the truest fact of all reality. This is the basis for everything. Without God, there is nothing. If there was no God, there would be no thing. God is perfectly content and would be forever perfectly content in himself if there was no earth, no universe, no you, no me. And God being God is is the most important thing. To deny it makes everything else nonsense. It's absurd. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. God exists. That's what his name means. Uh, And he wants his name to be revered. He wants to be glorious. So let's look quickly at this concept of glory. It's a word, one of those Christian words we can throw around a lot, but maybe don't take a lot of time to really think about what it means. And it's kind of hard to grab a hold of, honestly. Um, but there's two, two words, uh, a Greek word and a Hebrew word, that I think can help us out. The Hebrew word is kabad, and it carries the the sense of the weighty importance or the gravity of God. So maybe a good analogy is like, you know, if you're in the presence of an important person, if, if you happen to be in a room with the President of the United States, there's, there's a sense of importance there. I mean, this is, pales in comparison to who our God is. But there's a significance, there's a weight, there's an importance. The, he, the, the Greek word is doxazo, which means the reputation or the expression or the manifestation, or the radiance. Uh, synonyms would be majesty, or renown, or fame. Um, but the best way I've got in trying to struggle with this is to think about what God's glory is like. And this is an imperfect analogy, but it might be helpful. Is to think of the sun. And the sun is this burning, raging fire. And, and, and it's contained in itself, but, but out from it flows heat and light, and it nourishes and it gives life and light to everything in our solar system. Um, similarly, God is a burning, gigantic fire. He says, I am a jealous God. I am a consuming fire. Um, and he, but he's not a burning fire of gas. He is a burning fire of limitlessness and perfection. I think those are two words that help me think about who God is. Everything that God is, he is Perfectly. There's no flaw in it. When he loves, he loves perfectly. And he also loves limitlessly. Um, so, so when we say that God is loving, he is perfectly and limitlessly loving. He is limitless and perfect in his justice and limitless and perfect in his wisdom and his goodness and his power. And he's all these things in himself. I would say that in this analogy, the shining out, the radiation of his goodness, of his perfection, of his godhood, is, is what we'd call glory. In Isaiah 6, uh, we read the, about the angels as they fly around the throne of God, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They say it over and over and over again. Not, not because they're a wind-up toy, because they're constantly overwhelmed with God's holiness. Um, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. So the earth is flooded with the life and goodness and holiness and light and truth that is the glory of God. 
His holiness, his untamable, incomparable perfection pours out into his creation. And that flood fills the earth with life and goodness and the gravity of his being and the radiance of all his greatness and value. So say all that as succinctly as I can. I think a good definition for glory is, is God's expression of his godness. Um, and God wants us to recognize that expression. Um, so Paul, if he's going to summarize God's intentions, says it this way, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. He's where everything comes from. He's how everything got here, and he's the point of everything. He's where it's all going. Everything that is, he makes, and everything he makes, he makes for himself. Because God cares so much for his own glory, he will defend it. He will oppose anyone who threatens it. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. God will stand unopposed as the Lord of glory. So, let's get back to this idea of God-centeredness, something that, that strikes us as, as, as hard to deal with sometimes. I think it opens some questions for us, and I think it's worth addressing. So, he, he seems very passionate about himself, right? We, we tend to think about that as selfishness or arrogance. Uh, we like to think of God as a loving God. And John says that God is love. So how do we make sense of a God who does everything for himself and yet is love? But when we think this way, we try to think from our perspective up to God. We think of God as though he's like us. And God is not like us. He's infinitely better than we are. If I said to you guys, I want glory. Give me glory. I want my name to be great here. You would think I was kind of a fruitcake and a selfish person, and you'd be right. Uh, and, and you'd say, who does this guy think he is? And, and, and when God says the same things, we tend to respond in the same way. Who does this God think he is? Well, we just learned a little bit of who he thinks he is and who he really is. He is the all-powerful for all-knowing, perfect, limitless, independent, all-valuable, infinite I am. The one who made all things, the one who upholds all things, the one for whom everything exists. So there is nothing of greater value than him. So when he says it's all about me, he says it justly, because it really is all about him. He's the author and rightful owner of all things. And God being God, remember, is the truest and most central reality in the universe, and everything else hinges on that reality. So if God isn't true to himself, if he doesn't elevate himself, if he isn't interested in himself, and he isn't God-centered, then everything else would fall apart. So him acting for the sake of his name and his glory is just and true and consistent with his perfection. But not only is God's God-centeredness true to his justice, it's also true to his love. For God to love us means that he gives us what's absolutely best for us. And the best thing, the thing that would satisfy us most, is himself. So for God to lift himself up is to lift up the very thing that we want. And the thing that's best for us and the thing that we most desire. And if he was to deny himself, he'd be depriving us of the, the best and supreme thing. So God being focused on his glory is both just and loving. There. Lots of words. All right, so that's a little bit of, of thinking about God's glory from God's perspective. Let's, let's now kind of flip it around and look at it from our perspective. 
So there's this limitless, perfect God, and he does everything for his glory, and he pours out that glory into the works of his hands, and he declares that he is and that he's amazing. And his creation shines with the light of that glory, and we catch a sunrise, and we see its beauty and its majesty, and it takes our breath away. We see a grizzly bear, and it terrifies us, and we're amazed by its power. We look at the complexity and intricacy of the human mind, and we're dumbstruck. We hear music, and we're moved to tears. We look out at the stars, and we're overwhelmed with a sense of wonder. And where did these things come from? Where did nature get her majesty, the bear its power, the brain its intelligence, space its massive awesomeness? And where do we even get the ability to notice and appreciate these things? It all comes from God. All goodness that we see is a shadow, is an echo of what God is perfectly in himself. If anything is beautiful, it is because the God of beauty made it. If anything is strong, it is because the Almighty chose to show his strength through it. So anything that is good, and he called everything that he made very good, it's a declaration of the infinite goodness of God, the infinite godness of God. And of all these things that God made, uh, one thing had a unique place, and that was the human being. In the creation account, it says that he created us, Adam and Eve, in his image and likeness. He gave people a personality and an intellect Language, emotions, a will, desires, creative impulses, the capacity to speak and love and reason and choose, all of which are glorious gifts and all reflect unique aspects of God's nature. <laughs> and even the way he chose to create them was, was unique. He didn't speak them into existence like the rest of creation. He, he formed Adam with his hands and he made Eve from her rib and he placed them in charge over all the earth. Humans were made to be the jewel in the crown of creation, the creatures that most completely showed what the creator was like and most brilliantly reflected his glory. So we have this picture. We have God's glory shining out into the world. And then we have all of his creation shining back to him and telling of his greatness. And it's beautiful. It's a love song between creator and creation. It's a, a dance between our God and the things that he's made. Um, and all, God's part in this dance is to be who he is, which is to be glorious. Our part is to recognize that glory and to glorify him and reflect it back to him. The Bible uses two different words, two different forms of the word glory as verbs to describe our part as creatures in responding to God. Uh, it's to glorify God, which we're pretty familiar with, but then also the idea of glorying in God. So let's talk a little bit about what these two things mean. So to glorify God means that we worship him, we exalt him, we ascribe to his name the things that are due him. With every thought we think, every word we say, every action that we do, we should, should be done in a way that acknowledges that God is and that he is great. We praise with our voice, we obey what he says, we serve him. Maybe a good way to think about this is, is, is that we make ourselves a perfectly clean window so that his light can shine through with no defect. But I think there's, there's another aspect uh, to, to our role as creatures in the glory of God, and, and this, I think, is really powerful, and that's to glory in God. If, when we glory in something, we delight in it. 
We, we're satisfied by it. We feast upon the greatness of God. And we rest in him and we treasure him and we meditate upon his goodness and we are satisfied by him. I think a way, maybe an analogy to think about this would be like a leaf who, who stretches to absorb God's, to absorb the sunlight in order to nourish and, and have life. And I think, like Justin said earlier, stealing some of my, my thunder, the Westminster Catechism says a similar thing. It says that the chief end of man is to glorify God, but also to enjoy him forever. Uh, and I think these two aspects of creaturehood are, are a really helpful and profound way to understand what we're created to do and be. We glory in God and we soak up the overflowing, abundant life that shines out from him. And then we glorify God and we pour that life right back out in praise and adulation. It's this dual response of delight and duty that I think gives us the fullest picture of what it means to love and please God. And where that duty and delight meet, our creature love for our creator is complete. And we're able to be what we're supposed to be. Time. All right. So, but, I mean, I think we all can realize that, <laughs> that that's not what we do. Like, I don't do that. I don't delight in my God. I don't glorify him in everything. So what's the problem? I mean, we talk about it all the time, but the problem is sin. Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve. Uh, Satan is the original sinner. And he, there's a, there's a little passage that talks about him uh, in Isaiah. It says, how you have fallen from heaven. Because you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. Lucifer, the angel of light, decided that God wasn't satisfying enough, so he chose not to glorify him anymore. And he decided that he would be his own God. And he said to God, you are not enough for me. I'll do this without you. So instead of delighting in God's greatness and amplifying who God is, instead he delighted in himself. We need to see how absurd and heinous this is. But yet, Adam and Eve did the same thing. Um, and, just like God promised, they did surely die. And sin entered the world, and Satan became the god of this world. We were cut off from our source of life. We're dead and hopeless and alone and blind. And that speaks, that speaks to what I know of this world. It speaks to what I know of my own heart. Like, I, I hear this idea of glorifying God, and it sounds great. Yes, I do. I want to, I need something bigger than myself. I need something to, to delight in and satisfy me. But, but I am of Adam. My flesh is set on fire by hell, and it is hell-bent on having its own way. And this is an everyone problem. This is our glory problem. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us have known what, 
have, 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 have delighted in God. None of us have magnified him. None of us have known, have, 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 have been what we were created to be. None of us. It says in Romans 1, that although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So God gave them up to, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So if God, being God, is the central truth of all reality, the central lie that we've bought into is that God is not God and that we are. And this is a horrible trade. We are lousy gods. And we waste ourselves and we ruin ourselves trying to make ourselves good enough. Uh, and we have, we're cut off from the source of life. We don't have access to the glorious God anymore. And we, we've got to feel that. I mean, to see God is to see that. Because he is glorious and we are not. But, but, that's not the end of the story. Although we have a horrible sin problem, a horrible glory problem, in that we've chose to try to make ourselves glorious instead of finding our worth and our satisfaction and our delight in God. God has made a glorious provision. Let's marvel at how great and wise and gracious our God is. Read in Colossians 1, 13. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he, that being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you being us, who once were alienated and hostile in our minds, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and me as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amen, right? We were lost and hopeless and far away, but God in his perfect wisdom made a way to win his creatures back. We had cut ourselves off from God, but instead God came to us to rescue us. While we were still enemies, while we were still trying to be our own gods, while we were in opposition to the God of glory, he sent the glorious Jesus into the world, the eternal Son of God, the Word who was 
with God, the word who was God, and he became flesh, and he came to glorify his Father. And he did not fall short of the glory of God. He displayed it perfectly in everything. Every word, every thought, every intention, every deed was perfectly pleasing to his Father. He was an accurate reflection of who his God is. God is content for the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. But then he took on our sin, our guilt as sinners. He died in our place. He rose again. And he destroyed death and sin. And he ascended to the Father, reclaiming the glory that was rightfully his, and he sent his spirit into the world. I, uh, I'm running out of time. Let's, uh, yeah, well, hey, we, we got some time. We're good. Uh, let's look at two aspects of what Jesus did for us, because I think it's important. I think just like we tend to understand glorifying better than glorying, I think there's aspects of, of what Jesus has done for us that we understand better than others. First of all, he took away our guilt. God put our sin on him. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. It says in Isaiah, he was pleased to crush him. Because God has to defend his justice. God has to be true to himself, right? And so now we had a substitute. One who was worthy. And he died in our place. And therefore, for, for the people who believe there is no guilt, there is no condemnation. And that's glorious. But there's even more. Not only did he take away our guilt, but he dethroned that God-likeness, that part of us that says, I will be like God that lives in us. He took our old nature, and what the Bible calls the flesh, and he nailed it to the cross so, so that we could be free from it and so that we could live in the freedom and liberty of his spirit instead. So, I have some talking points. So what do we do now? So what do we do? What do we do, us creatures? I would say first, the first step to glorifying God is to repent of our sin. If we haven't done this, like we don't know him. Uh, and we can't be reconnected. We have to be honest about who we are and what we've done and what we haven't done. And, and we have to, to agree with God that we are violators and perverts of his perfect glory. And then we have to believe that Jesus and what he did was enough to satisfy God's wrath and to make peace with us and God. And then, now, being forgiven, that's not the end of the story. We need to be vigilant because that old sin nature is still present in us. There's still a part of me that wants to steal God's glory. There's still a part of me right now doing what I'm doing and preparing to do what I'm doing. They want you all to look at me and think I'm great. And that needs to be dealt with. And it can be dealt with. And we need, we need to do that by putting, as Paul says, put no confidence in your flesh. He says in Philippians, 
something, chapter or verse 3, we are the circumcision, meaning we now are God's chosen people who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in our flesh. And that's, that's our path to put down our, our God-likeness and, and to take up the glorious Spirit of God who, who loves God and wants nothing but to elevate and glorify God. And we need to trust Jesus as the source of our life and righteousness. God's not asking us to produce goodness or life, but instead to walk in the power of Jesus' perfect, death-conquering life. And that is the basis on which we can glorify God. That's the basis on which we can, we can be reunited and we can find our purpose in him. And as, as we put aside ourselves, we put no confidence in ourselves. Because God is the one who it comes from, and God's the one to whom it's going. We need to remove ourselves from that flow and glory in Christ and set our mind on his spirit. And then we're capable of being what we're meant to be. The perfect, limitless God, for his own namesake, has brought us back from the pit for himself, by his Son, so that we now can find our perfect fulfillment in glorifying him and delighting in him. He started it all, he did it all, and it's all for him. God is glorious, and he's passionate for his glory, and he made us for a glorious purpose, to participate in his glory. And although we have a horrible glory problem, God made glorious provision through his glorious son.